Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Francine Foss, Anise Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Foss is a professor of medicine in the section of medical oncology at the Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Chagpar is associate professor of surgical oncology and director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. And Dr. Gore is director of hematological malignancies at Smilo. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, you'll hear a conversation about lung cancer with Dr. Dan Baffa. Dr. Baffa is Associate Professor of Surgery in the Section of Thoracic Surgery at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Anise Chagpar. So, Dan, we hear a lot about lung cancer. Tell us a little bit more about how many people get lung cancer and how many people die of it in this country. Well, lung cancer affects about 200,000 people each year in the United States. And it is one of those cancers that is one of the most dangerous cancers, uh, meaning that at every stage, uh, stage one, two, three, and four, um, the lung cancer is more likely to shorten your life than a lot of other cancers that you commonly think of, such as breast and colon. So with 200,000 new cases of lung cancer a year, there are about 150,000 uh, deaths uh, each year. So it's a, it's a major health care problem uh, in the United States. It's the, it's the nation's number one uh, cancer killer. Yeah. And in fact, you know, as a breast cancer doctor, lung cancer uh, is the number one cancer killer of women as well. Um, overtook uh, breast cancer, which is the number one cancer that affects women. But as you say, lung cancer is is far more lethal. And one of the reasons for that, I, I think, might be that it's harder to, to detect. I mean, when women come in, they get a mammogram, and we find cancer early. Um, what, what do people do to detect lung cancer? So f- historically, lung cancer has not been uh, one of the uh, cancers that we had a good screening test for. So most patients would come to the attention of their doctor when they had a symptom. And unfortunately, once a symptom develops, uh, a fair number of uh, patients go beyond a point in which uh, we are able to to cure the lung cancer. Uh, That all changed uh, with a recent uh, study that was done that looked at the ability of CT scanning Uh, to screen patients uh, felt to be at risk for lung cancer. And that study, uh, which um, examined patients who were between the ages of 55 and 75, uh, who had uh, smoked uh, within the past 15 years and had, had smoked an average of a pack a day for 30 years, it reduced the chances of dying of lung cancer by 20%. Wow. And that that is uh, very likely uh, going to be the most significant um, uh, research to improve the outcome of lung cancer and probably in, in, in my lifetime. It's truly uh, in an enormous uh, advance in the, in the treatment of lung cancer. So, so, Dan, I mean, 
does that mean that everybody should get a CT scan, whether or not you smoke? Like, it should just be routine, just like every woman gets a mammogram over the age of 40? Should every person get a CT scan over the age of 50? Or is it really for those high-risk people? So the one of the interesting things about the uh, the national uh, uh, screening trial was that it really is not just a scan. It is picking the people at greatest risk to have lung cancer, uh, but also patients that we can do something about. Uh, for instance, it doesn't uh, help to uh, screen somebody who has a whole bunch of medical problems in which if you diagnose lung cancer, they're really not going to be able to tolerate the treatment um, and, uh, and benefit from, from the early detection. And CT scans, um, they do uh, have a fair bit of radiation with them. Uh, the, we're now doing uh, low-dose uh, CT scans, which just means we're, we're able to reduce the amount of radiation. But the fact is, uh, if you aren't in a population at a reasonable risk to develop lung cancer, you probably shouldn't be exposing yourself uh, to that radiation. So if if you've smoked a pack a day for uh, 30 years on average or half a pack a day for 60 years, but if, if you have a 30-pack year average, and at Yale, uh, if you're between the ages of 55 and actually 80, um, uh, and you have smoked within the past 15 years and you're otherwise uh, um, uh, relatively healthy, then uh, then we will uh, uh, evaluate you with a CT scan. But one of the real uh, uh, keys to this is it can't just be a CT scan. Screening is a, is a process. And what I mean by that is a scan will find an abnormality in uh, up to 28% of people. And the vast majority of these are uh, actually not cancerous. And for the, for the balance to work out, uh, the clinicians that are evaluating you must be able to balance the risk of a cancer with the risk of, of having harm from unnecessary biopsies, unnecessary x-rays, and, and, and so on. So for in order for a, 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 C, a lung cancer screening uh, to work, you really need to be evaluated by a program, not just to get a, uh, a CT scan uh, in isolation. So are these things um, being offered throughout the country where people who are heavy smokers can go and get evaluated by a, a team of people and, and get a CT scan that can be appropriately done? So... Right now, uh, Medicare uh, is not covering these CT scans. Uh, we have reason to believe um, that ultimately uh, this will change. There's um, the um, Yale as well as a, a number of uh, other institutions are very active uh, in trying to persuade uh, the uh, the federal government to uh, to include this um, in in coverage, uh, but. Presently, uh, uh, patients are either uh, funding these uh, out of pocket uh, or are participating in free events. Um, Yale has actually uh, sponsored a couple of these, uh, in which um, it's not really a scan, it's not just a CT scan, but the uh, the Yale uh, nodule program uh, will uh, offer a uh, a free CT scan as well as the entire uh, uh, nodule program or screening program, which includes 
uh, an evaluation by somebody who can help you stop smoking if you are a smoker, uh, currently um, a breathing evaluation. And so we're really trying to maximize uh, the, uh, the benefits uh, of um, the screening process. Uh, we actually have an event uh, November 8th, and uh, I am told there are still uh, a few slots available. And if uh, any of your listeners were uh, interested, uh, you could certainly contact the Yale uh, Nodule Program. Um, and I, th- I believe the number is uh, um, uh, 203-200, and then the word lung, L-U-N-G, uh, which I think comes out to 5864. Well, I mean, it sounds like a phenomenal uh, kind of program, especially for people who, uh, A, can't afford to uh, undergo such a process, but even for those who can, it seems really pretty comprehensive um, in terms of working up all of the potential issues for smokers. But lung cancer can happen in non-smokers too, right? So what happens with them? So... One out of seven uh, lung cancers will happen in somebody who is a lifetime non-smoker. There are other uh, established risk factors uh, for lung cancer. Some of them are environmental, uh, uh, such as radon or arsenic or uh, even asbestos. Um, some of them are were exposed to secondhand smoke, um, and there certainly is a genetic component. Um, patients with a family history, for instance, are at uh, an increased risk of uh, developing lung cancer. Um, the Right now, the, uh, the screening guidelines have not addressed that population as far as uh, their risk. Uh, ultimately, I would, uh, I suspect that uh, that people with a family history will will be included in, in screening protocols, but at present, uh, they're really not. What proportion of people who get lung cancer are smokers versus non-smokers? So a smoking history uh, can be uh, um, elicited in about uh, somewhere around uh, 85% uh, uh, of people uh, who are diagnosed with lung cancer. Uh, What is unclear is uh, whether or not all of those are directly uh, linked uh, to the smoking. Uh, the vast majority, we believe, are smoking-associated cancers. However, if you think about it, if one out of seven uh, is is destined to happen in somebody without a smoking history, some of them may have happened to have smoked at one point uh, uh, in their life. And there certainly um, uh, is uh, there the non-smoking-associated uh, cancers appear to have. Uh, a different biology and uh, come about through a different mechanism and uh, present their own uh, set of uh, uh, treatment uh, and uh, outcome issues. Well, I want to get I want to get into the the treatment issues and the nuances of smoking versus uh, non-smoking related cancers. But just to to kind of wrap up something that you said when we were talking about screening. Um, you had mentioned that many of the screening protocols uh, allowed for CT scans if you had smoked uh, more than a 30-pack year history um, within the past 15 years. So that means that even if you quit 14 years and 364 out of 365 days ago, 
you would still be offered screening. So is there ever a time when your risk actually like disappears, like you can be forgiven for the mistake of smoking years ago? Well, the the consequences of smoking on a person's uh, health um, uh, are multifactorial. And um, if we just think about the cancer consequences, specifically lung cancer consequences, Lung cancer in smokers is actually not the most common cause of smoking-associated death. Uh, only 6% of smokers will be, be diagnosed with uh, lung cancer. Their smokers are much uh, more likely to have their life uh, span affected by um, emphysema and cardiovascular diseases. Both of those uh, respond uh, very predictably to quitting smoking. So people that quit smoking pretty much uh, shortly after they quit uh, will have a, a benefit in their long-term survival. Now, there, uh, there are a number of studies that have examined the impact of ongoing smoking uh, once you've been diagnosed uh, with lung cancer, and the outcomes appear to be better in people that quit smoking um, uh, in, as opposed to people who uh, continue to smoke. So without a question, uh, if, uh, if somebody is to quit smoking really at any stage of their life, they uh, do a tremendous, tremendous amount of benefit uh, to prolonging their life. Um, the, um, and that's why we think this is an integral part of the, uh, the screening process. Now, why we would... Uh, why it would take 15 years uh, to develop a lung cancer uh, or, or why that window is tailored the way it is, the, the study that has uh, led us to uh, support screening, um, they, the uh, investigators had to design the population they felt to be at highest risk. Now, there certainly uh, is a, a, a dropping off of your risk the longer you go without smoking. Um, it never returns to that of a non-smoker, but there is a there's a predictable uh, decline in your smoking-associated uh, cancer risk the further you get out uh, from quitting. So if uh, if uh, if you're quitting, if you're thinking about quitting, the the sooner the better. But there really is never a point in time where quitting doesn't have very real uh, payoff as far as your uh, your overall uh, outcome. Well, we're going to pick up on smoking and lung cancer right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about lung cancer with my guest, Dr. Dan Boffa. The American Cancer Society estimates that in 2014, over 45,000 new cases of pancreatic cancer will be diagnosed in the United States. Pancreatic cancer is the fourth most frequent cause of cancer death. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven to make innovative new treatments available to patients. Clinical trial participation is offered for treatment of advanced stage and metastatic pancreatic cancer using chemotherapy and other novel therapies for the disease. Fulfirinox, a combination of five different chemotherapies, is the latest advancement in the treatment of metastatic pancreatic cancer. There's continued research being done at centers like Yale and around the world looking into targeted therapy and a recently discovered marker, HENT1. 
This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. For more information, go to YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Dan Boffa. We're talking about lung cancer, and before the break, we were talking about screening, um, which is a protocol that's offered in this really great multidisciplinary fashion with um, smoking cessation and and all kinds of risk assessment uh, for smokers with CT scans. But what we discovered uh, in our conversation was that um, non-smokers can also get lung cancer, but more interestingly, that the two are very different, cancers that arise as smoking-related cancers versus non-smoking-related cancers. So, Dan, I wanted to pick up on our conversation there. Tell us a little bit about how the two are biologically different, genetically different. Um, Can you really tell that these are different just um, at a molecular level? So... um, there, there are differences that uh, trend across uh, pretty much all of the uh, aspects that you mentioned. The, um, the, the sort of the uh, population statistics are very different. Uh, we see these classic non-smoking associated cancers more often in uh, Asian populations. They're more common in uh, uh, females. Um, uh, the the types of cancers, uh, as they look under the microscope, uh, are uh, much more uh, weighted towards the adenocarcinomas. Uh, lung cancers, uh, there's uh, two big umbrellas of types of lung cancer. There's small cell and non-small cell. Small cell, uh, which is about 13% of all lung cancer, is highly associated with smoking. Of the non-small cell, there's adenocarcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma. The non-smokers tend to be much more heavily weighted uh, to adenocarcinoma, and from a molecular standpoint, there are uh, certain mutations that are uh, much more common in the uh, non-smoking population, and mutations uh, are uh, abnormalities in the uh, the DNA, uh, and the ones that we're really interested in are the ones that allow us to use what we call targeted uh, chemotherapy that uh, is specific to the cancer cells. Uh, that's different from most chemotherapy, uh, which happens to kill cancer cells, but is also affects uh, the entire body. Targeted therapy certainly uh, can have effects uh, throughout the body, but is much more targeted towards the cancer cells that have these, uh, these mutations. So wait a minute. So you're telling me that somebody who doesn't smoke, who gets lung cancer, um, can get these genetic abnormalities that you can target with certain targeted therapies, whereas people who get lung cancer due to smoking either don't have the same genes or have different genes? So there is there are different frequencies in the two populations. So there's certainly... Uh, patients with smoking-associated cancers that have mutations, and uh, it's seemingly every month a new mutation uh, is discovered that allows us uh, to apply a new form of targeted therapy. The pattern uh, is distinct, though. We see certain uh, EGFR mutation 
uh, frequencies that are much different and much higher in non-smoking uh, patient populations uh, than we see in the smoking uh, patient population. But the um, both smoking-associated cancers and non-smoking-associated cancers um, are the study uh, are they uh, the focus of of a great deal of study to identify these targetable mutations. And uh, we have a, a number of clinical trials, uh, both in smokers and non-smokers, looking to uh, take advantage of these uh, mutations. So I certainly, um, if a um, if somebody was were to be diagnosed with a cancer. Uh, and had a smoking history, I would. Uh, there are certainly a number of mutations and uh, targeted therapies that are being explored uh, to treat those patients, as well as the uh, non-smokers. So you used um, you used a, a, a term uh, which many of our listeners may not be familiar with, EGFR. Tell us a little bit more about EGFR and what it is, and and why it's important in lung cancer. So. Under normal uh, conditions within the body, uh, their cells react to signals from their environment. And the uh, EGFR is one of, those, uh, uh, one of those proteins on a cell whose responsibility it is to transmit uh, uh, the, a signal from the environment into the cell. And of the many reactions that that signal can have, uh, one is to stimulate growth. And you can imagine if you had a fire alarm that uh, was malfunctioning uh, and was constantly giving the signals uh, to react, there would, be, there would be great consequences within the building in which that fire alarm was going off. Well, if the EGFR uh, pathway is abnormal, Cells can have uh, uh, can dr- the response to divide can be abnormally affected by this abnormal signaling through this pathway, and so there are a, uh, a class of compounds that uh, or medications that uh, target this pathway to blunt uh, the effect of this signaling, and it turns out that a certain number of cancers. Uh, become addicted to this signal and blocking this signal um, actually uh, greatly reduces uh, the uh, the uh, cancer's ability to grow and potentially uh, spread. And we have a, a whole range of um, uh, medications that are coming out to target not just the EGFR, but a number of signaling pathways uh, that cancer cells uh, appear to be um, uh, uh, that appear to be functioning abnormally, um, and the, the cancer cells become somewhat addicted to. So, but Dan, you're a, you're a surgeon. So, I mean, are all lung cancers treated with targeted therapies or chemotherapies, or are some treated with surgery as well? How does that work? Well, the whenever we meet a patient, we must uh, first decide. Uh, where is the patient's uh, cancer presently? And often patients will have something abnormal on an X-ray or a CT scan that may or may not reflect the what's going on throughout their entire body. If a cancer is contained uh, within the lung and the region and the lymph nodes in that area, um, then they are potentially curable. 
uh, with surgery, uh, possibly uh, the use of chemotherapy or radiation in combination, uh, sort of a multimodality or single modality plan. Um, the um, there are patients in which the cancer has either spread already, uh, and we can see that on the scans uh, to other vital organs, or whose tumor uh, has other features that lead us to believe they are very likely to have microscopic spread. Those patients uh, doing surgery, and while surgery gets safer and safer uh, um, uh, every year, there, it doesn't make sense to uh, to um, go down that pathway if the cancer is already already spread. I sort of use the analogy to patients that if your if your house catches on fire because of the furnace, uh, you if the whole house is on fire, you don't risk your life to go remove the furnace. Um, but uh, I most of my patients are patients who the cancer remains uh, contained where it started within the lung. And uh, we have a, a number of, uh, of advances uh, to minimize the, uh, the impact uh, of surgery on the patient's health and, and probably on their ability to uh, receive additional treatment. So we, uh, we specialize in minimally invasive surgery uh, which um, is doing the traditional lung cancer operation, but through smaller incisions without uh, traumatizing the uh, chest wall. So we usually don't crack, break, or spread any any ribs. We just go through small incisions uh, using a camera um, uh, to conduct the cancer operation. Is that kind of like how people take out gallbladders these days instead of making a big cut like they used to? That's exactly right. The the key, uh, much like the gallbladder, is that uh, l- l- doing surgery through small incisions has to follow the same principles. And uh, you really, because it's a cancer operation, while small incisions are, are nice, you have to follow the principles, meaning you have to completely remove the tumor. You have to ensure it's uh, surrounded by a rim of normal tissue. You have to evaluate the lymph nodes. Um, and uh, we do that uh, with a minimally invasive approach. Uh, however, if it seems that the tumor uh, is more extensive, then we use uh, traditional approaches, but we, with the modification that we, and we don't uh, cut any of the big muscles of the chest wall, we just sort of s- spread them uh, out of our way. So we've talked a little bit about targeted therapy, which is a form of chemotherapy, and a bit about surgery, but you mentioned in passing radiation. So where does radiation fall into the whole paradigm of how we treat lung cancer? So there, if you had to take therapy and, and separate it into two broad categories, chemotherapy being through the bloodstream uh, addresses the whole body. Uh, whereas local therapy is targeting areas in which you see tumor on the on the CT scans. Uh, radiation is like surgery in that it is a form of local therapy. And we use radiation uh, in combination with surgery in patients who are at risk to have tumor uh, recur or, or show up again in tissues that are not uh, able to be removed uh, at the time of surgery. So one example would be as if a, if a tumor came close uh, to a part of the heart 
and we removed the tumor completely, um, but there were lymph nodes uh, near the heart and main windpipe, we know that despite removing every visible lymph node, there is a chance that it can come back in the microscopic lymph nodes, and so we will add radiation uh, to those patients. There's also a form of radiation um, which is uh, called stereotactic uh, body radiosurgery um, or sometimes uh, called cyber knife at uh, uh, some places that is um, is a much more aggressive form of radiation. And, and that's a treatment we use in patients in place of surgery if they're either uh, too sick uh, to have surgery uh, um, or if we feel that the consequences of surgery would leave them uh, with an unacceptable quality of life. You know, a, a lot of our patients uh, don't have normal lungs. And at the end of the day, we want our patients to live as long as they can, as well as they can. And it, we don't help anybody by curing them of cancer and leaving them uh, um, unable to do the things that they want to do to enjoy their life. And so we, we certainly have some patients where we will treat them with radiation because we're concerned that a, a uh, surgical intervention uh, would leave them incapacitated. So, Dan, I love that, that line that you used, which was, we want our patients to live as long as they can, as well as they can. And, um, and I want to come back to, to a couple of points that I heard you say just to get some clarification. One is you used the term a few times of cure. Is this really a disease that, that you cure, that, that people can live a long time without, uh, without getting their cancer back just in the last minute? Let us know how much hope you can give patients with lung cancer. So we cure uh, of patients that are stage uh, one, we cure the majority of patients. As the stage goes up, the cure rate certainly goes down. Um, we used to think of cancer like a broken arm. You either fix it or you don't. We now, in many cases, treat cancer more like a chronic disease, more like diabetes, so that when it's a problem, we treat you, and uh, when you respond and you go into remission, we back off and we follow you. So, um, again, the equation remains the same. We want everybody to live as long as they can, as well as they can, and we have to balance the benefits of treatment with the risks of treatment. Dr. Dan Botha is Associate Professor of Surgery in the Section of Thoracic Surgery at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudet, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.